We're continuing in our uh, studies in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, still in chapter 1, looking this morning at verses uh, 4 through 6. This morning's uh, topic really uh, flows out of uh, the spiritual blessings in uh, in every heavenly place that uh, Paul talks about in uh, verse 3 and then in the uh, verses 4 through 14 he begins to elucidate what those are. And the first one he speaks about is uh, is election, predestination. Uh, Election and predestination is uh, spoken of some uh, 20 plus times in the New Testament alone by uh, people as uh, diverse as uh, Matthew and Jesus and Luke and Paul and Peter and uh, others. And uh, so it's... uh, It's a fairly widespread doctrine, not only in the New Testament, but in the Old as well, where it's also spoken of uh, numerous times. Uh, But uh, Paul does not here defend the doctrine of of election. He uh, actually has a very different purpose. If you want to read about his defense of the doctrine of election, go to Romans 8 and 9. He does a superlative job there, as you know, when we studied that, uh, that great letter. Uh, But uh, his purpose this morning, and mine this morning, is not to uh, defend, uh, but simply to place it in the context that uh, he has it here, um, because it has a uh, a quite a marvelous uh, purpose. I'll begin reading at verse 1, and uh, read through verse 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Let's pray. Father, you are marvelous in your ways with men, and mysterious as well. There is much that we do not understand, but what we do, we embrace with great joy. And we thank you that such is the truth of the doctrine of election that is laid before us this morning. We pray that you would keep us from pondering the imponderables, but to embrace specifically what you say here for the reason that you say it. And in that, Lord, to find great joy. To that end, Lord, open our minds and our hearts now to understand what you say to us through these wonderful words spoken through the Apostle Paul so long ago. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, a statue was, uh, uh, was erected high in the Andes between uh, the border of, uh, of Argentina and Chile. Uh, it is a, a statue of Christ, and it's called Christ of the Andes, and it, and it really symbolizes that Argentina and Chile had determined that they would never go to war, that they would always have a, a, a good relationship. And shortly after the, uh, the statue was erected, the Chileans got a little bit upset, and they began to protest because they felt slighted. 
Apparently, when the statue was put up, Jesus was facing Argentina. (laughs) Chileans thought that that was a little bit of an affront. And things were beginning to get a little bit out of hand until one day a Chilean newspaper uh, wrote something that just uh, not only kind of set things at rest, but actually caused the Chileans to laugh. And he wrote this. He said, the people of Argentina need more watching over than the Chileans. <laughs> oh, how I wish that the tension in the church over the doctrine of election and predestination could be so easily set aside. Isn't it true that uh, it is long uh, separated people in the church because the doctrine teaches that essentially God is the one who wills, who will be saved, and it's not merely the choice of a man or woman to do so. And reaction, of course, among people in the church, Christ's church, Christ's church, let me uh, be specific there, has, uh, has long uh, taken different tacks. Some people have just denied outright that it's taught at all. I don't know how they do that by looking at the language, but, uh, but they do. They just deny it. And it's sort of like ostriches sticking their heads in the sand. Uh, others say that election is taught in Scripture. They, they uh, acknowledge that. But they say that election is based on God's kind of looking down through history and seeing that, you know, when the right time comes, those people who hear the gospel are going to respond, and knowing that that's going to happen, God elects them to salvation. I don't think that that stands in light of what Paul says in uh, in Romans. Nevertheless, uh, the third group uh, embraces the doctrine of election as they understand it to be taught in Scripture. And that is that God's eternal and gracious and particular election of specific individuals to be saved is based on the merits and work of Jesus Christ alone. That's it. Now what's amazing here is that in one of the strongest passages that that Paul has concerning the doctrine of election, uh, Paul is using this doctrine not to separate believers, uh, not to instill pride in those who are chosen, uh, not to uh, convince those who understand it to, to vaunt themselves of any special knowledge of how God acts and why he acts that way. But he places it in this context specifically for this reason. Because he wants to assure the hard-pressed believers in Ephesus and throughout history that God has from eternity set his love on them and that no matter what circumstances they face, nothing can separate them from the love of God for them in Christ Jesus. In other words, predestination is meant to bless the believer's hearts. It's not meant to, uh, to be the, uh, the center of endless argument. It's not an excuse not to evangelize. It is the basis of our comfort when we face our limitations, when we face our sinful uh, shortcomings, when we face the difficulties of, uh, of this life. And here's how he goes about it. He begins by telling us the simple fact that God has chosen those whom he will save. And he goes on to say, tell us what God purposes in that choosing. What his goals are. And finally he tells us why God does that. So that's uh, how we'll proceed. And for those of you who sometimes struggle with uh, whether or not God loves you uh, because you've uh, sinned so uh, wickedly lately and you can't believe that he still does, and uh, which of us does not sometimes uh, entertain that idea, 
Or if you think that your circumstances are just so terrible that God must have turned his face from you. And that somehow he has just uh, turned his love away from you as well. Here is truth worth hearing. God evidently knew that not only the Ephesians, but that uh, people in attendance today would need to hear these very things. The first thing that Paul tells us is that God chose us. He says, God chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, and that he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Jesus speaks of election as well, of God's choosing, when he says, No man can come to me unless the Father sent me, draws him. Now, if you look at the word draws, it's a really interesting word because it, it means that one is drawn with irresistible power. In fact, in, in, in Greek, it was often used of a man who was starving and then food was placed before him. And he was just, he was just drawn to the food. He couldn't, there was just no way that he could resist it. And you and I, for instance, we might, we might think of the modern-day scrapyard, right, which uses these large electromagnets, right, and they turn on the uh, electromagnet. All the ferrous metal is, bang, it's irresistibly drawn to the magnet. But stuff that's, you know, like aluminum and, and, uh, and brass, that's not drawn because it's not ferrous. Well, in a similar way, God's elective will irresistibly draws to himself those whom he has set his love upon from before the foundation of the world, and it leaves, if it will, to having no effect on those whom God has not set his love upon. Now, this love that uh, Paul's talking about, this election, is uh, said to have occurred before, quote, the foundation of the world, that is, from eternity. Now, we need to remember that because Christ was crucified for us before the foundation of the world, that's what Peter tells us in uh, chapter 1, verse 20 of his first epistle, it also means that you and I, as those who were to be saved by his blood, were also designated at that time from eternity before anything was ever created as being those for whom he would die. As Matthew says in chapter 1 of his gospel. And what that simply means is that everything that comes to us, the inheritance of God's kingdom, the blessings of forgiveness of our sins, and all the other things that come, have been set for us in the mind and purpose of God before anything came to be. Now, why did God do that? Well, we can't say definitely, but one thing we do know is that God will not allow his glory to go to another. He will not allow any man or woman to take any any glory in having provided any part of their own salvation, as if somehow God owed them. And so God really uh, demonstrates that the salvation of individuals is entirely his own. Now yes, the scriptures speak quite quite probably, not probably, but quite uh, uh, accurately about the fact that we have wills as well. Wills that we are to exercise. And scripture talks about that. It talks about the fact that we are to choose this day whom we will serve. That we are to respond to the gospel. That sinners, when they hear that that, uh, their sins can be forgiven for his sake, are to respond to that. 
because God treats us as responsible people. At the same time, the scriptures also very clearly indicate that none of us can do that because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And that God has to act prior to our action in order for us to choose. And so no person receives Jesus as Savior unless he's been chosen by God. And Paul says this, for instance, in Romans chapter 9. Speaking of uh, the twins Jacob and Esau, he says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And in 1 Thessalonians, he says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. Now Jesus puts the tension of God's prior choosing of us and our responsibility to choose for him in a single verse. In John 6.37, Jesus says this. He says, All that the Father gives me, that is, all that those whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world, shall come to me. And the one who comes, and that reflects our decision, our responsibility to turn to Christ. He says, All, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And so when you look at the doctrine of election, it's not that somehow uh, sovereign election or predestination somehow eliminates man's choice in faith. It doesn't do that at all. In fact, divine sovereignty and human responsibility to, to choose are inextricably bound up together. The problem is, is that that defies our logic. We don't understand how that works together. Works fine for God. But you and I, we see here some some things that are seemingly opposite and irreconcilable. And if you're trying to think like a Greek, that's precisely what they are. Right? And you and I tend to think like Greeks. You know, logical. This, that, thus, though, because it flows, therefore, okay? But if you go back to the Hebrew way of thinking, the Hebrew way of thinking was called block logic. They just took the truths of God and they just stuck them next to one another and they, they didn't know how they related. It didn't matter to them. And so God's election and our responsibility to choose put them side by side, not a problem for them. Because they were both taught in Scripture. And that's ultimately what we have to come down to. In fact, John Stott, a man who's known for his sober assessment of Scripture, said this. He says, the doctrine of election is a divine revelation, not a human speculation. In other words, it wasn't dreamed up by Martin Luther. It wasn't dreamed up by John Calvin. It wasn't dreamed up by Augustine. It wasn't even dreamed up by the Apostle Paul, believe it or not. Okay? God spoke to Paul and told him, told him what to write. Jesus spoke of these things. Matthew was inspired by the Spirit to write of these things. All of the, all the writers of Scripture received the revelation of God concerning this doctrine. 
And it is not somehow the uh, imagination of overactive religious minds uh, trying to, uh, to come up with something that's uh, good fodder for discussion over centuries. We are simply to accept as God's revelation the facts as he lays them before us. That is that he says he has chosen particular individuals to save and that he sent his son to do exactly that. And that by the grace of God, it's precisely what has happened. So we must never allow our own subjective experience, which is basically bound up in our choice, right? That's, all, that's the only part we're really aware of at the time. We must never allow that to somehow water down the fact that the scriptures tell us that before time began, God chose us and joined us to the Savior and determined that we would receive every single blessing that would be ours because of him. It is a, it is a, um, a doctrine which uh, defies our analysis. And in the final analysis, we have to allow God to be God. Well, next Paul tells us what God purposes in choosing us. He says the first purpose of election is uh, sanctification. <coughs> says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that what we should be holy and blameless before him see God's electing people to be his own doesn't mean that somehow he's going to leave them morally where he finds them or only going to carry them halfway in fact election guarantees that God's people will persevere to the end and ultimately be glorified that God will carry them all the way I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about it. He's, uh, he talks about the fact that when he was a kid, uh, he often had a toothache. And he knew darn well that if he went to his mom and, uh, and, and told her the problem, that uh, he, he'd get some aspirin and, uh, and you know, the aspirin would do its, uh, its work and he'd be able to get a good night's sleep. But he said he never went to his mother and asked for aspirin unless he was on the edge of insanity. Because he knew that if he asked his mother for aspirin, she'd give it to him. He'd sleep well through the night. But he also knew the first thing the next morning, she'd be on the phone to the dentist. And that he would have to go to the dentist. And so, as he says, I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. (laughs) Well, see, he knew he wanted immediate relief from the toothache, but that she'd call the dentist, and he would have to go to the dentist, and he knew what dentists do. Okay? Dentists don't stop with one tooth, right? They look at them all. And he knew that the dentist would not get out of his mouth until he set everything right. And he finishes with these words. He says, our Lord is like the dentists. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some particular sin. Well, he'll cure you all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked. But if you once call him in, he will give you the full treatment. Well, that's precisely it. See, election doesn't merely convert a person. It brings them to perfection. It purposes, as Paul says here, to make us holy and blameless in his sight. That is to separate us unto him and to make us as if we are without any blemish whatsoever, like a perfect sacrifice. Now, obviously, Paul is talking here about our position before Christ, before God the Father in Christ, not our practice. 
you and I both know, Paul knew quite well from his own experience and from those that he worked with, that we're far from holy and we are far from being blameless. His point is, however, that because we are joined to Christ, we are in him and we are seen by God the Father as being holy and blameless because of our union with Jesus Christ. And therefore, our position will never fall short, even though our practice will. And that is a very important point, because that's what maintains the security of our relationship with God and his love and his commitment to us, is that we are joined to one who never failed him, ever, not for an instant, And that has been credited to us as our righteousness. Moreover, Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6 that the sanctification that God is taking out is not just positional, but in fact is taking place through this life and will find its completion at the day of Christ. And so that we can be encouraged that even though we may not be what we want to be, neither are we what we were, And we can look forward to what we know God has in store. Second purpose, Paul says, God intends by our election is our adoption as sons. He says he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. In other words, in his great love for us, he makes us more than just citizens of heaven, more than just servants, and and more than just friends. He, He actually adopts us as his children into his family. Paul speaks of this in other places. For instance, in Romans uh, chapter 8, he says, You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, which means daddy, it's a term of endearment, father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In Galatians, he says very similar things. He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Of course, the the question presents itself, do we have that spirit of adoption? Do each of us, do we know that God is our Father, not simply some force, not something set out there, but someone close and intimate? Do we understand that we are members of his family and that the closeness of this relationship is exactly what Christ purchased for us by his death and his resurrection? Well, last, Paul tells us why God chose us. He says, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. In other words, God's choosing cannot be separated from his love. He didn't do his choosing of those whom he would save by the the casting of celestial dice or the cutting of a great uh, heavenly uh, cut of cards, right? Or the spinning of a mighty roulette wheel of the heavens. He didn't do that. God elects those whom he will save simply because of his love. Paul states it very clearly as we saw when we studied Romans in Romans 8.29. He says, those whom he foreknew, that is those whom he set his love upon, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. See, the biblical agape love is is not some sort of emotional response to things, but it is the disposition of the heart to seek the best interests of the other individual. In fact, Jesus speaks of it very well when he says, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did on behalf of those whom God chose for salvation. He laid down his life for them. There was a, a medieval monk who, uh, who uh, determined that he was going to preach on the love of God on the coming Sunday, and so he got the word out. And as, uh, as time for the Sunday service came, he waited until the sun went down and the, and the cathedral got really darkened by shadows. And then he took a single candle and he lit it. And he went up to the crucifix. And the first thing he did was he held the, the light up by the, the crown of thorns. And then he lowered it and showed the, the two hands nailed to the cross. Then he lowered it just a little bit further to highlight the spear, the sign of the spear in Jesus' side. And then he pulled the candle down. He blew it out. He walked out. That was his sermon. There was nothing else to say. In the ultimate act of divine love, God determined before the foundation of the world that he would give his only son to save the elect by going to the cross and dying in their place. That is what his love has done. In Ephesians, as we will see in a couple of weeks, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ. You know, Jeremiah is a great Old Testament book. And if you want to see the, the electing love of God there and his grace and his mercy poured out, you, you can hardly find a better Old Testament book. People might argue for Psalms or Isaiah, but I think Jeremiah takes the, takes the ward here. See, for decades, Jeremiah begins uh, and, and carries out probably in about the first 28 chapters of, uh, of his book. Uh, he, he basically lays out the judgment of God against his people. Man, he is preaching gloom and doom. He's preaching bad things, okay? God is not happy. And he is going to punish his people with sword and famine and captivity. And he turned out to be right because the Babylonians in 597 B.C. Uh, tore down uh, the, uh, the walls of Jerusalem, killed a lot of people, and dragged the rest of the, rest of the uh, nation away into captivity. And then, bang, right then and there, there's this amazing change in and Jeremiah is preaching, and he suddenly begins to, to preach glad tidings of grace and glory. If you start reading there, you, you, see, you can't miss the transition. In fact, that's why I chose chapter 31, because it laid just a few of those out. But here they are, some of them. God promised he'd bring his people back from captivity, 33. 
He would love them with an everlasting love, 31.3, and turn their mourning into gladness, 31.13. He would make a new covenant with them, 31.31, and give them singleness of heart and action, 32.29. God would even cleanse them from all the sin they've committed, 33.8. See, it's this eternal love of God set upon sinners from before the foundation of the world that is the fountain from which God's great salvation flows. In fact, the very verse we read in 31.3 says exactly that. I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore, love is prior, therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness to myself. Paul finishes with the ultimate reason that God does this. His love is a wonderful reason, but it's not the ultimate reason. For Paul says this. He says, God has elected some to be saved for the praise of the glory of his grace. And here he wants to emphasize the bounty of that grace. The fact that it just continues to overflow and overflow. That is why God saved some out of the entire mass of humanity who deserved condemnation. That's why he made some of us sons. That's why he saved us. Specifically to the praise of the glory of his grace. So above everything else, God saves people from their sins by the blood of his son to display his glory. In fact, Jesus says that very same thing. When he said, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Jesus was affirming the delight of God in putting his glory on display in the salvation of sinners. Paul further explains, he says, we have been saved in order that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified. 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 11 and 12. One day, uh, Charles Spurgeon was walking through uh, some fields with a friend of his, and, and they uh, came upon a barn. And up on the barn, there was, a, uh, there was a weather vane, and on top of the weather vane were the words, God is love. And Spurgeon got himself all in a dither. And he says, a dither is an old word for working up your lather, you know. And... and uh, <laughs> Okay. And, and if you don't understand what that means, it means Spurgeon got a little upset. Okay, and uh, but he because uh, he looked at it and he said, you know, he said that, that, that that's not true. He says weather veins are are, are changeable. He says, and, and God's love is constant. And Spurgeon's friend says, you know, Charles. He says I have to disagree with you. He says I I, I think you misunderstand. He says I think you got it wrong. He says the sign indicates something that's really true, and that is this, that regardless of which way the wind blows, God is love. Well, the message of God's eternal, unwavering love for his elect people is the great truth that Paul wants to say here, that in spite of whatever we face, however hard things might be, however perplexed we might be, that love remains constant. Because before we came into existence, God had determined it would be so. And that in Christ, it is so. And it will never, ever change. So 
So to us, God says, I love you. I loved you before the world began, and I love you now. And predestination is God's way of shouting his eternal love to us. So that no matter how hard it gets, we know he loves us. Let's pray. Our Father, we are, uh, we are humbled and thankful for the fact that the love that you have set upon us from before the foundation of the world is a love which has saved us and drawn us to yourself through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that this day we can celebrate that love no matter what our own failures of will or shortcoming or decision making or anything else might be. You love us because you have chosen freely to love us for your glory. And that's all that there is. Lord, we need nothing else, quite honestly. Nothing else can ever eclipse this singular truth. Grant us increasing joy in the fact that today we celebrate the fact that by your mercy and grace you have chosen us. And in that, Lord, to endlessly sing your praise and to share the gospel with great freedom with those around us, trusting that that truth will also reach the ears of those whom you have also ordained to eternal life and that hearing it, they might believe. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.